0: It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Explorations Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to ExplorationsEarlyLearning.com slash membership, or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. On with the show. Hey, Jeff here. Just a little note about what you're about to hear. The Early Learning Journeys podcast used to be a standalone show I did with Tamar Jacobson. We decided to roll that show into the childcare bar and grill and are releasing the 14 episodes that we did As standalone shows into the Bar and Grill feed, so they'll be here. Uh, Also, stay tuned for fresh episodes of that show as tomorrow and I record them. Plus, tomorrow's going to pop on for non-interview episodes now and again as time allows. So uh, we're glad to have her aboard. So here's the episode. Johnson here with Tamar Jacobson. Tamar, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jess. How are you? I'm great. We're back with another episode of Early Learning Journeys. Who do we have with us today? We have Colleen. Colleen
1: Walling, is it? Yes, correct. Can I pronounce it correctly, Colleen? Yes. I know Colleen because of the um, Tulsa um, International Infant-Toddler Conference she, I think you were on the board or on the conference planning committee and you invited me to come there.
2: I don't think I was on the board. I think I just put <coughs> your name into the mix.
1: <laughs> oh, OK. And um, but I think you've known me since Fredonia days. But that yes. part I don't know that you have to say how you'd know me. OK. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise, let's just take it away. She's a wonderful infant teacher. She's been trained by the Pickler Institute. This is what I know of her. She's a darling person and she has been very supportive
0: of me. Well, excellent. So Colleen, were you? Were you a, what was childhood like? What kind of kid were you? Were you darling then as well?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would say yes, but I have a feeling my mom always says I have red hair and my mom always says that I have the temper to go with my red hair, <laughs> um, but I grew up in upstate New York with my mom and my dad. Um, I'm the oldest of three sisters and the oldest of 12 cousins. So I was always the oldest, the leader, but I did it, get a little is fiery. It, is it true <laughs> about your temper? Um, I would say yes, sometimes.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Especially if all those cousins got out of line, huh?
2: I would <laughs> never have guessed that. I'm, I'm pretty introverted until I meet people and feel comfortable. And then once I feel comfortable, some of my colleagues say that my filter comes off and those are their favorite days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was growing up like? What, what, what did you play at? What was, what was life like? How were, how, how, how were you at being a child?
2: I remember we played a lot outside. We had a cottage in upstate New York on the St. Lawrence River. And there was cottage rules where we basically were outside, you would eat breakfast, you'd go outside, swim, run around, come back in, maybe eat lunch or eat lunch outside, run around some more. There was a giant sandbox. And those a lot of my memories are from cottage life in the summer.
0: That, that sounds idyllic.
2: It was lovely. It's one of my favorite places to return to as an adult, and just now as an adult, I can relax when I'm there. It's a little different than being a kid, but we would play kickball on the lawn, go out on the boat, fish off the docks. It was a fun time.
0: A lot of of free range.
2: Definitely free range. And like you, we knew that we were being watched. There's about 15 cottages in our little community. We're like on a peninsula. And you knew if you did something wrong some other parent was going to tell you and it was going to get back to your parents <laughs> so there was this big community and my I'm one of the like I'm, I'm probably the third generation to be enjoying up there so a lot of the cottages have been owned by families for generations uh-huh. so you just get to know everyone like an aunt and uncle even if they're not biologically your aunt and uncle
0: yeah i talk to i talk about this a lot what what because that 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 describes play in my neighborhood growing up during weekends and summer vacations as a child and talking to to some people today young parents especially who don't have a version of that in their history, they they they're like you're they just abandoned you, um, but the reality is we, you had the community looking out for you. There were neighbors in the driveway working on vehicles or working on the lawn or hanging laundry or or having a cocktail on the patio or whatever. And 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 so there were adults keeping an eye on you. There's that one lady peeking out from the curtains, jotting notes to share with your parents at church on Sunday or whatever it was. So we were we had we had some freedom. The adults were just kind of stepped back. Back and uh, and and maybe not as intrusive as maybe adults are in some situations now, but they were they were totally looking out for us.
2: Oh yeah, there was no way we could have gotten into any real trouble. You know, there was always <laughs> people and there, we were around the water. So there the really strict rules were about water. Like you don't go in the water by yourself. If you're going swimming, you have to ask someone to watch you, make sure someone's like really looking out for you when you're in the water. Yeah. But And we did it at home too. Like we would play kickball in the street, but it just, then we would have school and other commitments. Um, But in the summer, as a kid, we just didn't have anything to do other than play.
0: So were you a boundary tester?
2: I would say yes. And I still am. I am the person that looks at the rule and says, well, technically that's not what it says. It technically <laughs> says that we can do this. <laughs> so, and I think my parents would say I was a bit of a boundary tester.
0: What what did that what did that look like? Any stories that spring to mind?
2: Oh gosh. I can't think of any really as a child. Um now it's more yeah. as an adult. <laughs> Go ahead, come on. I
1: would have thought that you were um, very responsible because you had to take care of everybody.
2: I was responsible, but then there was the side of me that also has always been a little bit of a boundary tester and testing limits. Uh-huh. And yeah. I mean, I, I always was the person taking care of my younger cousins, especially my youngest cousin and I have a 10 year age difference. So, I mean, she was a baby and I was old enough to be able to hold her and feed her and so I got a lot of experience with my cousins and some of the younger kids especially up in our cottage community my mom said that the moms wouldn't worry because they'd be on the porch you know having a beverage and I would be off with like the two-year-olds just like in the sandbox and she said the parents had no worry they were like oh wait where are our kids oh it's fine they're with Colleen they're probably playing in the sand or reading books or so I think that's where I got a lot of my kind of hands-on practice
0: sure did did the boundary pushing was that was that in rebellion to the being the leader responsible one or is that just a different, different side of you
2: I think it's a different side of me um I mean I can okay so I can actually I can remember a story and I was in high school so I was a little older and we had a substitute teacher and my friends and I being ninth graders that we were Thought it would be funny to turn our seat chairs backwards. So like we turned our desks facing the back. And I can't remember what else we did. We were making faces. And all I know is that evening, there was a phone call to my house from the real teacher because she had gotten a report (laughs) from the substitute teacher. And we had a concert that night. I was big into the music department in high school. And the tradition was after the concert, you would go to like friendlies, That was our local kind of ice cream place. You would go and get ice cream. And I remember we were in the band room after the concert. And there was about four of us who had been involved in the shenanigans. And I was like, are you going to Friendlies? And we all decided we weren't even going to ask that night because we knew <laughs> 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 we were not getting ice cream. <laughs> the gig is up.
0: <laughs> I, I,
2: you, I can't you, imagine. You
0: like what? I
1: Sorry, I, uh, did you initiate that, that bad behavior or did you just follow along?
2: I'm not sure. Um, I always also used to get in trouble for talking, talking to my friends during class. And sometimes I did initiate that. I remember uh-huh. there was a, an English teacher who, who set, changed our seating arrangement because there was some of my friends and I were always talking and he moved one of my friends to the opposite corner of the room. And I said, well, that's not gonna work because now I'm just gonna have to talk over everybody. <laughs> Which you know cracked everybody
0: up. <laughs> I can't imagine a worse job than being a high school substitute teacher. No, because I mean we did we did horrible things. We would we would like change names. We would I I would pretend to be my buddy, and for the whole for the whole class period. And if it was a substitute, we had for multiple days, we'd keep going it for days. And and nobody nobody in the class narked on us because they thought. It's it's this hilarious thing thing that's going on, and I, I don't know. No real trouble came of it, but it was it was delightful to to mess around with substitute teachers.
1: That's, that that, oh, that yeah. shows me that it, what it shows me is that um, there's a lot of repression with your regular teachers, and so you can expand when somebody comes along who's not your regular teacher.
0: Yeah, yeah. You were probably a, a good student and never did any of that stuff tomorrow, right?
1: I was very good, unfortunately.
0: I mean, (laughs) unfortunately, you saved you saved your rebelliousness till you got older.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I ever was really rebellious. I think I think as a as um, you know, when I make a stand for children or teachers or whatever, then I'm pretty tough and uh, assertive. But for my life, I was very careful and shy and worried.
2: I was, there was like a little slice of me that was rebellious, but not, I mean, I, we didn't do anything. I didn't do anything terrible, just, you know, silly, what we, I like to call shenanigans. But, and I think sometimes it surprised people because I was a good student. I was, I basically paid attention most of the time. I did my homework most of the time. And so every once in a while I would do something and I think it surprised people. Like, it oh, surprises she, me. she has that, <laughs> she has that in her. <laughs> it
1: surprises me to hear this about you, Colleen.
0: <laughs> we're, we're, what topics did in school did you like the best?
2: Music, 100%. Music. Band, um, inst- we had. I went to a school district that had a really good music program. So we had like instrument lessons once a week. I played the clarinet. I was in marching band. I was in chorus. I didn't like chorus as much as I liked band and just sitting with my friends and I was the kid who always did the all-county band and that kind of thing. So the, I say music.
0: Is that still part of your life is the is the clarinet in the room there with you that you could play a little bit for us now?
2: Oh, it's it's not. I haven't picked it up in at least 10 years. I still have it, but I have not played it in many years.
0: <laughs> I I pl- I studied the clarinet for a while in elementary school band um because um, I was young and stupid and didn't know the right names for the instruments and I wanted to play saxophone but I got the and so I was stuck playing the clarinet. And imagine, imagine my surprise when I show up for the first class and they hand me this, this thing that's not a saxophone and, and I, so I stuck with that for about a year and a half and and then moved on with my life but uh, I wish I could I wish I could play that's awesome.
2: I think every time I mean, you, I could, ever... you could play that for the babies. I, you know, I do think of bringing it out every now and then, like I should get back into it and play it. And I mean, I still have it and I do sing a lot with them and I, I work with infants and toddlers. So we do obviously sing a lot. We have a keyboard. We had a keyboard in the classroom. We have to get a new one. The one we had kind of died. But so I do incorporate music, but not necessarily playing the clarinet.
0: So it sounds like uh, the the early years of Colleen were, were pretty, 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 um, comfortable and good and happy huh yeah I would say yes that's awesome what was so high school you're a good student you love music you uh you uh a little bit rebellious now and then just to, to shake the cobwebs off um what else is going on in life uh any any high school jobs or hobbies or after school activities beyond beyond music that you were involved in
2: um, I was involved in some of the church ministries, um, I, most of the music ministries. You know, I was in the little ensemble that they had. I was in the church choir. I did a lot of babysitting. I would say I was about 12 when I started and always was babysitting. I had, I think in ninth grade and then again in 12th grade, I had an after-school babysitting job where I would go every day after school and be with kids for a couple hours till either the parents got home or finished up their working from home. And I volunteered in the church so, nursery.
1: So let me get this straight. Since age 10, you've been taking care of young children. Hmm.
0: Yes. What, what kind of babysitter what kind of babysitter were you because uh, a lot of the the guests we've had on the show so far have have talked about babysitting in those early years and and uh recently Heather Burt Santee that early childhood nerd talked about how she did a lot of playing school uh with with kids uh that were younger with her um our our beloved Lisa Murphy talked about her thing was mostly raiding the refrigerator and and (laughs) uh and, and hanging out and and that kind of stuff what what kind of what kind of babysitter were you
2: I think I was kind of fun you know I would let them play but then I also looked forward to bedtime when I could just like lounge around and watch a movie and I was like I'm getting paid for this because I mean young kids go to bed at least it seemed pretty early when you're a teenager and it was like oh my gosh I have three hours to just sit around and get like Lisa Murphy get some good snacks see what kind of snacks they have
0: were, were you were um, you doing were you doing your homework too
2: Sometimes, probably yeah. not a lot in high school. In college, I would say more. When I babysat in college, I would bring work to do, but probably not when I was in high school.
0: So in your in your older high school days, or even even your younger high school days, what were you what were you planning on being when you grew up?
2: Mm-hmm. A, a teacher, a hundred percent. From the time I was really young, my mom, where my parents found a thing I had done in first grade. And it was when I grew up, I want to be a teacher, T-E-E like C-H-R. So I knew it from very, very early on. Why? Were you OK?: oh, why? why did you want to be a teacher? I think I just really enjoyed being with children. I liked the experiences I had with the younger cousins and I, it just felt like a calling to me. It's like what I was meant to do. It just you never I, I, thought, you never thought. Oh, gee, I'd rather be an architect. No, there was I, a, a I'd rather be a, a, a No, there was a very small time where I thought maybe I wanted to be a music teacher because I really liked music, and then I realized no, I I want to be. When I was applying to colleges, I knew very clearly I wanted to do early childhood.
0: I, I was going to ask if, it, when you were, were talking teacher, if you were talking elementary school, third grade, like teacher, teacher, or, or early childhood. So, from from a pretty early age, early childhood was your was your jam.
2: Yeah, I think probably in early high school, I envisioned myself being maybe a kindergarten teacher, and then the more I had some as in college, I had some more experiences in classrooms. I just realized that the younger children were the ones that I was most drawn to, and I found the most interest in and that just brought me the most joy experiences such as such as so that um, I went to SUNY Fredonia, and they had a really great early childhood program as well as a child care center on the campus and I volunteered there from freshman all the way through when I graduated I became an afternoon aide there then I was I was a sub an afternoon aide so I mean I worked and volunteered there through college and it was a very a program based in really strong early childhood principles. It's there that I got to see in action, things like process, not product. And it's there that I was given articles by Elfie Cohn, you know, why not to, why not to say good job, 10 reasons not to say good job. And I got to be, they had a a two-year-old program at the time, a two-year-old, a three-year-old and a four-year-old program. And I started in the three-year-old program And uh, the teacher actually in that room, Nancy, was one of the best teachers I've ever seen in action. She just, even thinking back, she was just so calm and her classroom felt peaceful. And that's what I wanted to be as a teacher. And then I started, when I started substituting, I would sometimes, you know, go for a couple hours in between classes into the two-year-old room. And I realized, oh, I like this even better than the three-year-olds. And then after college, I got hired there and helped to start an infant toddler program at that center. Was, um, was Suzanne McLean your director? She wasn't, it was Judy Metzger. I came uh-huh. on shortly after Suzanne left. I know her, but she yes. had left. And, uh, and was Mira your professor? Mira Berkeley was my professor and I loved, loved her. I loved all her classes. I still love her. And I was, I think a freshman or a sophomore And I signed up for the infant toddler class not knowing it was a class that usually people took one year higher and she let me take it and that was just what I needed I was like oh I could be an infant toddler teacher this is what I want to do so I think my first year of college I knew I want to work probably not in public school I want to work with younger than kindergarten and then as time went on, I really realized I want to work with the littlest ones. And, so
1: it,
0: um, oh, go ahead, Tamar.
1: And I think that, um, Jeff, we may have to have Mira Berkeley on.
0: Well, put yes. it on the list. Yes. Absolutely. So, Colleen, it sounds like your, your real world experience as a volunteer and an employee was, was pretty much in line with what you were learning in the classroom academically. There wasn't a, a, because we've, we've had guests on who, who were experiencing one thing in the real world and hearing something different in, in their, in their education. And so it sounds that things were pretty aligned.
2: It was very much aligned. I mean, we would be learning about process art in class, and then I would get to go into the two-year-old room and see them painting with finger paint all over the table. (laughs) Or I would learn something in class. And even when I was a substitute or afternoon aid I would say hey what about this idea I saw this in a Bev Boss video can we try this and the teachers as they got to know me would let me try things yeah go ahead try this experiment try this um art activity with the kids so I got a lot of practice and it it really did align with what I was learning that
0: that sounds almost as uh, idyllic as the uh, the summers in, in the cottage along the river
2: yeah. I'm so grateful that I went, that I went to the college at a time when the early childhood program was very strong and the childcare center was a high quality center. Cause I always, I think what if my first experience had been in a really not good center? Would that have turned me away from the fields? Would that have made me question things more? But I got into the classrooms there and I said, okay, this is, this is what it, This is what I'm learning. This is what it should look like. This is what I love, and uh, that really was the foundation for who I am as a teacher.
1: And then, you know, all this idyllicness. She packs up and goes to Oklahoma.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oklahoma. Uh, That's the. That's all I know. The song.
1: I mean, you have to explain this to me.
0: We, okay. Well, before we go before we go to Oklahoma, I you touched on something, you talked touched about on on finger painting with the with the little ones. Why why does it seem like so many adults are scared to let infants and toddlers have sensory experiences that result in in messes? I
2: I honestly don't know. I try to look at the other perspective and it's hard for me to understand. I know they don't want to deal with the mess, mm-hmm. but I mean, everything is washable, you know? And I, a couple years ago, even at my own school, I put up a bulletin board in the hallway, a documentation board of my children exploring paint I'm you know on their faces on their belly buttons because you know toddlers take the paintbrush and go around and around their belly button or under their arm one of the kids that day who said look I'm painting my armpits and I was like you are painting your armpits and I remember I put that board up for the parents really but several teachers came to me and said well how did you get them clean when you were done I said well I use soap and water and washcloths and it really to me it wasn't even that big of a deal I was like I got them clean I warned the parents hey just so you know we use purple paint today your child doesn't have a bruise if you see something in the bath. <laughs> and I think I think maybe teachers are afraid of the parents response yeah but I I would say slowly the parents in my room learn oh okay my kid's gonna get covered in paint in this classroom and I don't do it on a kid's first day usually sure
0: you don't want to overwhelm the parents at the
2: beginning well you
0: know my theory
2: is is
1: that a lot of people didn't have those experiences as children and it's 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 even more than the mess it's like it's something that's foreign yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah I, I think that's why it's so important to have have uh policies for onboarding staff and parents into a program that gets everybody on the same page philosophically because i i, I i've done two trainings this week online and i heard heard versions of this for both of them i i i really want to embrace that but parents coworkers and so if if people are on different pages philosophically it's it's really hard to to get in in line with those kind of things i mean i mean cleaning up a toddler after messy play is is easy first there's i mean just just there's just less of them to clean up so that makes it easier <laughs> the the only real thing to worry about is uh is when you take them outside and hose them off you can't have too much water pressure cuz they're they're small and it'll blow them they'll just roll across the playground so you got to be careful about that but uh but otherwise it's it's pretty easy because most of them enjoy water and washcloths and and that becomes a sensory experience of of its own
2: right yeah i mean i usually have the children help me to clean up you know, I get them kind of cleaned up so they're not at least covered in paint. And then I give them spray bottles or washcloths and let them wash the table. You know, I need, look, our table's all dirty. We need to wash it. So yeah. I think it it just lends itself into even more things we like social, emotional skills and self-help skills. Look, this is how we clean the table after we paint.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think we need to get more, I've been really thinking a lot lately about the systems programs put in place for doing things. And if we're very, if we're thoughtful about putting a, an effective system for mess management into place, we end up in a better place um, having messy paint play and then having water play right after that takes care of 80% of the, of the mess and you don't have to do anything. And, and they're mesmerized by that purple paint turning the water in that, that once clear water play bin uh, purplish and, and and there's that whole, whole different experience there to build on.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I think it's a systems thing. I think it's also just be as a teacher a, a beyond the systems thing as a teacher, when you meet that family in the orientation or for the first time, warning them, warning them. I like to say, you know, in this classroom, your child is going to get messy. Sure. So be prepared for your kid to come home with purple paint in their hair. Like yeah. I always say like, that's the kind of classroom that this is. And then if I need to, I explain it. This is why we do it. But Nine times out of 10, once they see, I try to get pictures of their children in this messy play. When they see the look on their child's face or the, in their eyes of just pure joy, they'll, they're, it kind of brings them around. Okay, yeah. I, I get it. Look how happy my kid is. And you know what? If you do it here, I don't have to do it at home.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big selling point for a lot of parents. And, and building on that, we're going to get messy here. Um, and here's why and just giving them the the briefest of of explanation about why this experience is great whether it's sensory integration or or the go to or is always this is a this is a pre-reading and pre-writing skill um because i mean there's a lot of parents that's all they want to hear about and and when you can explain that the finger paint is 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 leading in that direction um that that just gets a little bit more buy-in from them and brings them along yeah, yeah I, recently-
2: you know, I
1: think what's important about telling parents why is that um we take seriously that they care about the education of their child yeah it's, it's, I, that sometimes teachers forget that we need to take that seriously, even though it's, a, it's a, it gets in the way of the, our work quite a bit,
0: yeah, because yeah. i mean parents they generally i mean i 'm sure there are outliers there, but they generally want the best for their child, except they don 't have the experience and and knowledge to know what that looks like. In in the early years, I think especially, and so our job, whether we like it or not, or get paid for it or not, is is bringing them along and nurturing and supporting and educating them as well.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, but, but but I want to know about why Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, okay. Are we are we ready to move there?
0: Yeah, let's go. Let's okay. go to Oklahoma again. I, I mean,
2: we
1: can come back, but I just I I've always wanted to ask you that question. Are you anti Oklahoma? No, I've been there a number of times and they've been so wonderful to me there. Um, I've also been not only to the International Toddler Conference, I did a a very big workshop in Ada, Oklahoma, which is the Bible Belt, actually. And uh, it was there that I proclaimed that I'm an atheist and I didn't know that I was in the Bible Belt. And that's a whole nother story. But anyway, I love Oklahoma. I have nothing against Oklahoma.
2: Oh my gosh. I can just imagine that playing out in a small, small I mean, town. Ada is a very small town, Oklahoma. I can I mean, just imagine. At the end, one of
1: the people came up to me, an older woman, and she said, do you know that you're in the Bible Belt here?
2: And I said, oh no, am I really? <laughs> anyway, yeah. go on. Okay. So <laughs> sometime in probably around 2007, 2008, maybe 2009, we started talking about the center that I was working at, we started talking about expanding. We were going to, they had gotten a grant and funding from the college to expand the center, to open up some infant toddler rooms, build a brand new building from the bottom up. um, We were gonna open up a baby, baby room, a one-year-old room, and then in addition to the rooms we already had. And I wanted to be as prepared as I could to do that, to work in, I'd never worked in an infant room before and I, I really wanted to prepare myself. So I took a summer off, I think it was 2008. I took the whole entire summer off and I went and I did my Rye training. I did Rye Foundations in Florida and then I did both, both PITC train the trainers.
1: Okay, so now explain what those two things are.
2: Okay, so the Rye Foundations is resources for infant educators And they have a foundations course, which is about a week long course. I think it's about 40 hours where you learn the basics of um, the philosophy of Rye, which is what Magda Gerber that's Magda Gerber brought pickler over from Hungary. And so I learned a lot about pickler and Rye at this Rye training and PITC is program for infant toddler caregivers. And I went to the training to be able to teach other people their materials. So I went to this Rye training and I met someone who worked at day schools here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I got to talking to her as you do. I mean, we were together for a whole week. So we would go out to lunch together. We'd go out to dinner together. We just would talk in between, you know, lessons that we were having. And she was telling me about her center and you should really talk to my director. You would love it. And we're, we try to be Pickler- influenced and I got on a call a couple weeks later with the director and she said okay I want you to come to Oklahoma I I thought it was just to get to know you and she was like okay when can you come and I said oh I thought this was an interview she's like yeah it is when can you come (laughs) (laughs) and I said I can't come right now I took the whole summer off from my job they gave me the whole summer off to do these trainings I have to go back there. I'm going back there to help them get their infant toddler program started. Cause I mean, that's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to help get a program built from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And, but we stayed in contact and about a year, she one of the things she told me is if you come work for me, this was Laura Briley, who has since passed. She was at the time, the president of Pickler USA. And she had told me in our initial phone call, well, if you come to work for me next year, we're having a Pickler Institute here at the school and Anna Tardos is coming. And Anna Tardos is the daughter of Emmy Pickler. And I was like, you know, I I would love to, but I can't. I, I have a commitment and I just can't move across the country right now. This is not a good time. You see, well,
1: but, you see what a responsible
2: woman Colleen is? This is, <laughs> this is Colleen. And then about a year later, I got an email that said, you have been invited to this Pickler training. I, I mean, I, I thought for sure I wasn't going to get an invite. And so I, I pulled all kinds of pennies. I pinched pennies and I got so I could come to Tulsa for this training. And I sit down at the table there's probably six tables with maybe six or eight feet round, six or eight tables, you know, round tables. And who sits next to me at my table, but Janice Gonzalez, Janet Gonzalez-Mena. <laughs> and I'm I'm looking around this room and I'm like, there. now I just call her Janet. But at the time I was like, there's Janet Gonzalez-Mena and there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so and they wrote this book and they wrote this book. And I'm in my twenties and I'm thinking, how am I even in this room? How did I even get to be a part of this I felt like such a such a novice and and toward the end Anna told me you are too quiet because I mean I was just like <laughs> soaking I was just I was a sponge I was just soaking everything up and I wasn't asking questions and I was just I mean I was just in awe to be in her presence and just hear from her and I was taking like notes I mean trying to get every word which of course I'm not <laughs> and, and So, and then after that, we stayed in contact and uh, Late 2010, I just decided it was Time to try. I really wanted to work in a school that already had some Pickler um, Philosophies in place. So I moved in January 2011 And I worked with Laura and Susan Patrick, that was Susan Patrick, was the person that took Rye with me. She was Laura's second in command, and I came and I worked with her for about three years until she passed away.
1: Amazing. I, I mean, these are
2: these are such
1: important people in terms of infant care, um, infant and toddler care. You know, we had Elsa Chahin uh, with us. Um, I know, yeah. I know, <laughs> and um, it you
0: know it's it's the best of the best of the best i i need to go back um away from oklahoma for a minute did you get the the program at the at the other place up and running
2: we did we did and i started in the one year old room and it was going really well it just wasn't as like as far along as i wanted to be in terms of pickler and rye but mm-hmm. at the time i was the only one who'd even gone through the training and so i just I thought that maybe I would fit in a little better and learn more in a place. I mean, where Laura Briley was the president of Pickler USA. So yeah. I was single fairly young and I just decided to take a leap. It, was, it was was building that, that
0: infant program where you, did you build from, I mean, did you get to room design and room layout and where you- I,
2: I did? Yeah. I got to help with some of the purchasing. I worked with a team. There was a team of us and I got to uh, the director at the time, let me sit down on interviews. She knew that I really was wanting to do more, grow my leadership skills. So I got to sit down on interviews. And I mean, we talked about, well, we this person we think would work really good with this person and this person mm-hmm. and let's order this. And what kind of, what paint colors do we want? What carpet do we want? I mean, that's the staff, the current, the staff, the current the staff that was there as we were building had a lot of say into what yeah. we wanted. and that it was a really unique experience. Okay. So let's
0: take this side journey for a moment. What, what did you, what, what was your ideal infant space like when you were designing that space? And, and how, how might that differ from, uh, from what you would, what you would put together now with, with a, with a few more years of experience under your belt?
2: That's a, that's a really good question. I think that's a very good question, Jeff. I'm very impressed. That's that, that's a that's a yeah. Well, let so, me let me give myself a plus. Uh, yeah, here in plus my
0: plus heart. plus <laughs> plus. Yeah, save that one. That's it. Got extra credit for a good question. Um, well, I think, so I, think I, I think it's important that we kind of kind of flesh out what that room should look like and and know that, that that things change over time. So let's dig into it.
2: Yeah. So I think when we were ordering things. at the time I was ordering more toys you know I wanted them to have matching things and little puzzles especially in the one-year-old room the room that I knew I was going to be in and I wanted the infant room to have you know things they could mouth teethers things they could touch what do you mean by matching things I mean like um like having two of something, having like two, when I you know, would buy a set of animals, buying two so that they could match cow and cow or horse and horse or, um, and as often I knew at the time, it's important to have multiples, especially with toddlers to have like two, sometimes three, sometimes now I would even say four or more of the, the very popular toys. So there was, I, there was a lot of doubles. So I guess I would say that would be kind of what I was thinking of as matching toys. I knew that there had to be, some gross motor so we pushed to get a loft like a uh, community play things nursery climber put into each of the rooms but now i have a lot more open-ended play objects in my classroom i would say i have more things like which has been influenced by my pickler training and also some you know reggio influence and but i have things I have uh, metal condiment cups. I would say that is my favorite object to use with infants and toddlers because they can stack them, they can bang them together, just little two ounce condiment cups. And and if someone asks me for a gift for a one year old, oh, someone's turning one. I'm like, get these you're gonna think I'm crazy because people say, well, what, 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 what do they do with them? I'm like, what don't they do with them? They stack them, they stack them, they nest them together. They bang them together. They drop them on the floor. They do all kinds of things. And My, my niece and nephew have their own set of metal condiment cups because it's, that's important. So I have, now I have a lot more and now I'm in a multi-age classroom. So that's also different. In the school in New York, it was like the baby room, the one-year-old room, and the two-year-old room. Mm -hmm. So now I have to select things that is appropriate for an infant, but also that's stimulating for a two-year-old, a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. So I have a lot of um, like the muffin cups, little pipe pieces of PVC pipe, just empty bowls. I mean, loose parts. Yeah, loose parts. So I have a lot more loose parts now. And I have devoted a much bigger area to gross motor play than I would have even five years ago, just so they can get that heavy work and just move their bodies how they need to move their bodies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably a third of my classroom right now. We have a wooden, a pickler arch with a ramp. We've got weighted balls. We've got vestibular cushions that kids can stand on. We have a little tight slide we can bring inside and outside and, all kinds of things and ways for them to move their body we have those bouncing horses that are they're like rubber and the kids can sit on them and bounce around the classroom so i think i value movement more than i did having large you know space for them to actually move
0: yeah so i didn't didn't hear you hear you mention uh baby swings not a lot oh, of not uh, a lot of baby swings?
2: No. In fact, when we were designing the infant room at the school, I remember a conversation where we were ordering things and one of the other staff people said, well, what about the swings? And I was like, well, why do we need swings? So I did start the conversation in Fredonia and we did not order swings and we did not order bouncers and we did not order exercisers. I said, well... You can order them, but if I'm the teacher in the infant room, they're gonna be in a closet. So that's gonna be a waste of money. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty, I, I became more of an advocate. I think through that process, I'm like, no, we do not need swings here. And still I, I, I would never put a swing.
0: Yeah, I I've a walked swim. into infant rooms where you know uh, a room set up for for six or eight infants and in there's six or eight swings and all the babies are swinging in unison and and unconscious because they get overstimulated with the swinging and the music and the vibrating because those those swings do everything now and then the staff is sitting rocking themselves reading a reading a book in the in the rocking chair because all the kids are overstimulated and fall asleep to to, to get away from that it's 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 really a waste of real estate. It's well, actually abusive i, I yeah yeah I, I and look if you're if you are a a a parent and the only way you can eat a sandwich and take a shower and maybe pee by yourself is to put the baby in the swing for a little bit uh, go for it, but in early 100%. learning settings I think there are there are other options. I I have seen swings in infant toddler rooms that I've I've really loved. A a program I visited up in, up in Halifax, up in the Canada, they had one of the, one of the toddler swings and it was a, about a three foot square piece of plywood suspended about two inches off the floor with a chain going up in, in each corner. And they just, it just gentle swinging back and forth and they would crawl up on it and swing and and stand up and hold the chains and rock and all that kind of stuff and it's a it's a much more um, child led experience than being strapped in like they're going into 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 orbit like they they are in the, the the traditional swings.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to swings like that. Of course, or like I've yeah. seen programs with a really low tire swing that's almost on the ground sure. that, that that children can get in. But I mean, it, it's different than a baby container, a yeah. place where you just plop them. Yeah, and yeah, they're just spending... leave them for way too long. Yeah.
0: I, I I got to go through the building process once, and we did things like we we put all the electrical outlets uh four foot off the ground instead of down where they traditionally are and we were we were really thoughtful about building our our changing space set up set up I mean me and the architect went back and forth for for weeks and months probably about about having the way the sink was going to be located and everything i wanted I wanted a heated surface on our changing table just to be nice and nice and cozy for the babies, but the budget didn't allow that that was kind of Kind of that sad, would
2: be but... that's the hardest part because it's cold. Yeah. You know, and especially at home, they're often changed on a bed uh-huh. or maybe on the carpeted floor or on the couch, or they at home their changing pad probably has a cover, you yeah. know, a, a cloth cover. So that the coldness is always it's going to be like I'm gonna lay you down and it's gonna be cold. And you know, there's I'm sorry. And some days it's colder than others, and I'm I'm sorry, I know it's cold. But a yeah. heated changing table would be They should put those everywhere. They 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 should be everywhere. I I know
0: I know when somebody starts changing my diapers at some inevitable point in the future I'm gonna want to eat a changing table. I mean, (laughs) just the way I roll.
1: (laughs) Did you you never want to be a director?
2: No. I don't know. No. I don't think it ever crossed my mind. I I've thought about doing, especially now where I'm at, being more of like a mentor coach. But right now I still like being in the classroom.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think if anything, we shut down for, from March to July. Our program was not serving children because of COVID. And I missed being in the classroom so much that I realized, okay, now is not the time for me to leave the classroom and become more of a mentor type coach. Um, I work right now for Early Head Start. So coaching is part of the model. And especially I work at uh, Tulsa Educare, which is based uh, on the Educare model and coaching is a big part of that. But right now I like being in the classroom. I'm happy to have student interns come in when things are normal, not right now. But I, you know, I like doing mentoring in, in the moment and like afterwards, do you, what did you think about that? And oh, in that moment I did this. And also in that moment I did this, which I shouldn't have done. That was, huh. you know, I went a little bit my voice got a little bit loud there or, you know what, I didn't even see that that had happened in the background and I should have been responding to that. So right now I'm still very happy working in the classroom uh-huh. with, with the babies and the toddlers.
0: So you, you started out in this program that you volunteered in and then worked in and then abandoned after. <laughs> You didn't yeah. abandon them. You moved on. Uh, <laughs> you moved to moved to Oklahoma. How long were you at the at the place you moved to work at?
2: I was there about three years. I stayed, let's see, Laura passed away in September. And then I stayed until the following like summer, sometime in the summer. I left. The program after Laura passed away the program just changed and it didn't have the same spirit and lots of other people were leaving. And it was those people that had helped to create the spirit of Mm -hmm. the place. And then it actually got sold and another company bought it. And I was able to go in, I was there doing something at the site. And I think I was doing childcare for high Holy days. It was at a a temple. And one of my friends said, you need to go look at the baby room. And I, I looked and I mean, it was all swings all, it was not the baby room I left at all. I mean, they took what to me had been the almost a perfect infant room and made it very commercial and swings and I I've, about I've, extra saucers and-
0: uh, I, I find it fascinating how one person can, serves almost as, as an anchor for programs like that. And when they they move on for whatever reason programs do Um, evaporate is essentially what happens and and the quality can change because people move on and they don't have that that connection that they that they had had yeah a
1: director
2: sets a tone a hundred percent I mean right now with the school I'm at I love my director so much and you know I'm like well as long as he's here I'm here that's that's (laughs) my plan because he Gives us freedom. He's very, very knowledgeable. Actually, Chris Amaral, you should put him on your list of people to interview. He has lots of experience in the field, and he lets us do our own thing. Also, by also, but also sets boundaries and keeps us interested and in models leadership and like a community. We call we've gone to calling ourselves a community of care since COVID because a lot of teachers had to switch classrooms because not all the children came back and they wanted each child to have at least one teacher that they knew. So we left, we came back to a whole different program than we left, but it, he keeps calling it the community of care, which is doing things like when you're out in public wearing your mask because it impacts what's happening in the school. And so he's really created this culture of caring even before COVID.
0: And, and this is a you oh, said well, head, oh go ahead sorry no it's
2: a, it's a good
1: reference for for to to talk to someone yeah
0: we,
2: the, this is he, a head start related program you said it's an early head start program head start. and it's um under the educare model and i uh-huh. think they're in about 15 states it was started in chicago by ounce of prevention what was at the time ounce of prevention and warren buffett so the educare mm-hmm. model is that private Philanthropists and public funding come together to create state of the art early childhood facilities that have I mean very big budgets to even build the schools. Mm-hmm.
0: so my experience I, I do a lot of burnout related training, and my experiences with people working for head start look early learning people are tend to be burnt out for whatever reason already, and I hear from a lot of head start people that it's even a little bit more because there's there's just it it seems like they've got layers and layers of bureaucracy on their shoulders that kind of make working for a head start program maybe even more stressful intense for some way in some ways than than uh, quote unquote normal programs do you experience any of that with this model you're working in or
2: Um, definitely when I started when I moved from I had all worked only worked in nonprofit centers and then I moved to head start. And in the beginning, I couldn't believe all the paperwork and all the documentation that was required. It was like, you had to document the same thing in this form in this system and on this form. So there was a lot of duplication of why do I have to write this three times? So when I first started, yeah, there was, it was harder to adjust to Well, we have to do this and you have to enter this many observations and you have to do this. There was more rules I would say, but as time has gone on they've the agency has done a lot better with streamlining some of those things so maybe now we only enter it in our online documentation area so now you don't have to put it on the paper and put it in the file and put it on our online system and they moved everything digitally so Uh that has also well most things so that's helped too because it's easy to find things if gosh forbid something goes missing like well where, where is this from two months ago and i'm like hold on let me pull it up Well, well, that's because I mean, we need we need to document
0: stuff, of course, because sometimes that that comes in handy. But I've I've run into so many caregivers and especially with infants and toddlers, because there just seems to be more we want to we want to track with them just because of their 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 age, that that caregivers start feeling like they're doing more paperwork than than interacting with children. And for somebody who I mean, they didn't they didn't come into the field to be accountants. Um, and bookkeepers and so they they feel a real a real disconnect there to, from from the expectations that they they have from their their administrators to what they what they came into the field to do so it it sounds like you're in a in a pretty good place there I, again more more idyllic than the, the the situations a lot of people in the field oh
2: are. i mean it's it's very it's i realize how much of a kind of utopia I'm in sometimes when I talk to people that work in other places, whether it's for Head Start or even if it's just at another center. Um, because we we have a mental health specialist in our building on staff. We have social workers in our building on staff. So they can help with some of those the documentation that needs to be done in their areas. We have a disabilities coordinator on staff in the building. So we're just, we're very lucky. I, I always have someone I can reach out to if I have a question or a concern, or if I think maybe a child might need some services, I can talk to that, fam- that child's social worker, and then we can approach the family together. There's a lot of, there's a web of people that are very involved in each child and family, which takes some of the pressure off the teacher. Because I know in some programs, the teacher is doing all those it's things. A, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. real community of care. Mm-hmm
0: never been fired
2: no surprisingly no
0: <laughs> I, I she might be our first guest who's never been fired tomorrow
2: there there was a program no there was a program I worked at which I will not say where it was or when it was but I did work at a program very shortly I made it about a little over a year there and I think if I hadn't left, I probably would have been fired soon because I was pushing back against things. I'm like, well, this isn't even licensing. Like this isn't against licensing. We cannot be doing X, Y, and Z. And the director at this program did not like that I knew licensing because I said, this, we can't be doing this. This is not allowed. And I remember when I gave my notice, the director said, I think we both knew this was coming. <laughs> and, and I didn't even finish up my two weeks. The director said. I think it was a Tuesday. She said, "Let's just make Friday your last day." <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so I think that's the. I think I probably would have gotten fired from that particular place, but I was pushing back. I'm like, first of all, this is against licensing. Second of all, this is not what's best for children, and it's just wasn't you know, it's right funny fit. that you
1: call it pushing, you call it pushing boundaries, but I, I I I call it ethical awareness. Um, you know, with the. <laughs> you know, NAYC does has, have a code of ethics. And uh, part of the code of ethics is that sometimes you need to speak out if it's not okay.
2: Um, that's part of the ethics. And so that that was ethical to do that. Yes, I think yes. But I think the director saw me as a troublemaker.
1: You sure, know? Well, that's always the case with ethics, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to ethics tomorrow um uh, i i got a problem with nayc with their with their vendor hall because they put in they put in uh you know and and their advertisements and their and their 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 stuff uh, you know they put in this just because we got them here doesn't mean we endorse them uh but but they are tacitly endorsing them by letting them into their vendor hall and they've got all kinds of bullshit going on in their vendor hall um last time i was there and i think that's really unethical of nayc to do that but i'm a little bit of a a rabble rouser myself.
1: No, you're principled. You're principled. I mean, because the, I, think,
0: the, I think the term I they use it is, is it. troublemaker.
1: Uh, you know i I agree with you that there, there are things in the in the in the exhibit hall that are really not appropriate, really not appropriate
0: but but they write um, they write a big check so they get to be there and so it 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 send it sends a really mixed message to to their attendees because they can say we don't endorse this product, but by allowing them into the hall, they are totally endorsing that. so um the problem. i guess, I well, guess.
2: And, and I think part of the problem is i I do believe that most with probably some exceptions, there are most programs want to do what's best for children. Maybe there's some that don't, but I want to believe that. And I really believe some people don't know better. So when they go in that exhibit hall, they think, oh, I need this smart board for my one-year-old classroom so I can teach my children shapes, you know? Or they, oh great, they have a program now where the kids can do a puzzle on the smart board in my one-year-old classroom. And I think people don't know better and then they see it and it's flashy and new and, oh, well, we need this because what we're doing isn't good enough. I think it makes people question what they're doing in their own program. Is, is what I'm doing, especially people who are maybe not as strong in their beliefs or their philosophy, and, and maybe people have only had experience in centers that aren't so good.
1: And it's not only beliefs and philosophy, it's knowledge of child development.
2: Yeah yeah
1: a lot of people don 't have knowledge of child development period
0: <laughs> so Colleen, how has your professional practice changed since you were were ten and started in the field
2: I mean I think now i can 't believe people left me like with their babies when I was maybe twelve years old i i just i mean I was responsible I would have known to call the fire department, maybe handled some emergencies but i i can 't believe that at twelve. People were going out to dinner and here's my baby. (laughs) Go ahead, put him to bed. And I, so I think obviously my knowledge has grown and I'm one of those people who's always looking to know more. I'm reading, I'm attending right now. I I like to attend conferences, but I'm doing a lot of webinars and Mm -hmm. just trainings like that. So I think knowledge, I think patience. I think I've gotten some more patience in terms of, understanding that not everyone is at the same level as a teacher, you know, someone might come in that hasn't had any experience or really only had a poor experience. So I'm that's something I'm working on like continually is just more understanding and compassion. Like oh, the, you really don't know better. It's, it's not that you're trying to be mean to the kids, you really don't know. So I think I've grown more compassionate um, towards colleagues And I think confident, I'm more confident than I was even probably five years ago. I I became a lead teacher at Early Head Start about five years ago. And I can't tell you how many times I was going into my uh, mentor coach's office and saying, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this. This is All this paperwork, all this, like I'm failing. And she's like, no, she said, I remember this one day I was like, the end i was like i just don't know i just don't know if i can do this and she said to me what's gonna happen when you walk back in that classroom she said i want you to imagine you've been out with me for about an hour when you open the door what's gonna happen and i was like well so and so's gonna come running and give me a hug and so and so is gonna smile and so and so and she's like that that's what matters that is what matters so she helped me to gain a lot of confidence because also an early head start there's a lot of classroom observations where you're scored You know, maybe you're scored in class or itters. And my first year, I didn't score great, and I was like, "Well, that just means I don't know what I'm doing." Well, now I can look at it and be like, "Well, I do do those things, just not in this way or not in this way." And I'm like, "You know what? Those scores, they the the observation can give me insight, but it's not a definition of who I am." Mm -hmm. And I, I and I have I know some really great teachers who. We've had some conversations since. And like one of the people that I work with who is one of the best teachers I've ever seen, she's like, oh yeah, one year I had a kid run out of the room during my observation and my kid, she said, he never did that. But when you have an observer in the room, it changes it. So I think I've just gained a lot of confidence and not worrying as much what other people outside my classroom, obviously outside the families, not worrying what they think. You know, I don't care mm-hmm. if someone in the next room over is scoffs at me because my children are covered in paint.
1: You know what? Let it be. It, it, it really does change things when there's an observer in the room. I remember when years ago I was a validator for NAYC accreditation and I was watching and you know, observing a room and there was an a, a male teacher actually with uh toddlers. And he was so nervous that I was there. And I could see that he was nervous. So he he took a tissue And he wiped this nose and that nose and that nose and that nose with the same tissue because he was so nervous. And uh, I was writing it down and thinking, this poor man, I'm sure he doesn't always do that.
2: (laughs) It's very hard to have an observer in your room.
1: Yeah. Especially
2: it? when it's, especially if it's tied to something, it's usually tied to something big, like accreditation. Sure. Like, am I going to be the reason my program doesn't get accredited? What if I do X, Y, Z, or um, it used to be where I work now that things like that, they impacted your salary or like the bonus, the incentives that we got each year. So it was like, if I don't score well, then I'm missing out on, you know, $1,000. That's a big deal for a teacher, yeah. <laughs> an early childhood teacher. So, but now I just... I approach it and I think I give my team confidence and you know what, whatever happens, happens. It's a teeny tiny sliver. They're there for two hours out of the, how many hours do we have, are we here every year? So it's, I, I mean, I, I'm sure I did some crazy things the first couple of years, cause I was so nervous. What if I mess up and I get fired? What if this and this and this? And now I just, I myself, I have the confidence to be myself.
0: No, you, you build up some rhino skin about those kind of things. You 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 just get a little bit tougher with them. And those observations not only does it does it impact the 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 response having that person in the room impact the responses of the of the staff and kids, but those people bring. I mean, no matter how well trained they are, they do bring their own bias into how things should be done. That and 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 how they score things that that do have an impact. Probably, most likely, usually unintended. But uh, they're not picking everything up. And and so I don't I don't know They're, the the reliability and validity and validity testing on some of those things um, maybe isn't is as grand as it as it should be for them to be effective tools.
1: That, I mean that's such an important message for other educators, Colleen, to be more relaxed and, and believe in yourself. Yeah, yeah. So-
2: and I, I mean, there's of course there's lots of moments and days when I have self doubt, so I try to not let that creep in um sure especially like if uh you have a child with special needs that maybe you feel like you're not meeting their needs um a couple years ago that was the situation for me and I was like I this child isn't getting the services they need I don't feel like I'm giving them what they need I'm also not meeting the needs of these other seven because this one child absolutely needs me 99.9 percent of the day just because of but uh I think having people you can talk to Mm -hmm. um my, one of my best friends, Jen, she is a preschool teacher. She was a preschool teacher. She went through Fredonia a couple of years after I did. So we can ha- I can have those conversations with her like, oh my gosh, she'll never believe what happened today. Or what about this? Or what about this? And sometimes, sometimes it's with people that are in where you work, but sometimes it's nice to have someone who's not there, who can look at it more objectively. Right.
0: Right. You, you mentioned something a bit ago. You were out of the room and uh, you were asked what what was going to happen when you went back in and you mentioned the kid running to you, all happy and everything. Can we talk for a moment or two about how evil and manipulative toddlers are with their with their big eyes and their, their, their unbounded love and affection for us and the way they manipulate us with all of that?
2: No, it, it makes the job more enjoyable. I'll take the manipulation if that's what it is. And it just, yeah. I... I'm such a relationship-based teacher. Like, I really, really value, I would like to say more teachers value the relationship, but the relationship I have with each child and each family is, like, this precious gift that I get. I mean, they trust me. I mean, not only keep their child alive, but to keep them safe, make sure that they're cared for, make sure that they're loved, and so I think the biggest compliment I can get from a teacher or a parent is you know thank you for loving her or thank you for noticing this or thank you for just giving her that hug thank you for being there for her while we waited to come get her when she needed stitches because she split her knee open like thank you for being there for her so I think like the relationships are just such a crucial piece and those of us that know child development know all that brain building that's happening and one of the reasons I, I like the program, Matt, is that we have continuity of care. So I can get a baby at six weeks old, and that baby stays with me till they're around three, sometimes a little older than three, sometimes a little younger than three. And then they go to a preschool classroom that's multi-age three to five. So in the mm. whole time that are, they're at our school, they're only in two classrooms.
0: That That is great, especially if you can keep uh, staff turnover down. So that they they have that that handful of caregivers in all of those early years. I think tomorrow was going to scold me a minute ago when I said <laughs> infants and toddlers were were evil and manipulative. She was shaking yeah. her head, and I and I heard it, Jeff. Um, yeah.
1: And well, you but, could see that I was looking over the top of yeah, my glasses. Yeah, or,
0: yeah like, a, like, a, like a scary teacher. But, but look, they've got those big eyes. Their, their faces are evolutionarily designed for us to want to take care of actually. them. So they're, they're totally manipulating us all the time. And, oh, take care of me, love me. Um, they're, they're Jeff, just... that's the wrong word. Well, okay, what is it? What's the right word? They're
1: seeking relationship. They are seeking relationship. They have to have relationship to
2: survive.
0: Uh, they're, they're just con- trying to keep
2: me. No, they're conditioned to seek out connection. That that's mm. you
0: know. that sounds like manipulation know. to me. Um
2: <laughs> that Jeff, That Jeff. It's you're, amazing. You're amazing. That
1: I
0: Uh, Yeah. I, I, the fact that anybody talks to me is, is amazing to me. No, I, my, my favorite age group, it's always been the infants and toddlers because, because the whole world is so fresh and new and exciting. And, and every, every experience is a first time experience for them. Even if it's the hundredth time you've read Brown Bear, um, you're still reading Brown Bear to them for the first time in some senses. And it's, it's just delightful. And, and they're, they're so emotionally available and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with them. It's, it's just, it's just a grand thing. And I, I, th- I think I got some, some weird looks in, in parts of my career for being a dude that was gravitated towards the infants and toddlers. But I mean, that's just the way it was. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun, fun, a fun version of humans to spend time with.
2: Yeah, I mean they're just so fun. My favorite is in the moments when the classroom is everyone's playing somewhere. You know, there's peace. No one's no one's trying to take something. There's no teeth out. I mean, it's just this. There's moments of peace where I can just sit back and watch. Yeah, what a child is doing. I'm like, wow, he just took all those little test tubes from over there, and huh? Well, they fit inside that toy. I never even knew. I mean, I have a little a little like a little Fisher-Price dollhouse in my classroom that I bought, I don't know, probably four or five years ago. And I the, I took the batteries out because I'm not a big fan of electronics and young children. So the, the, batteries, the batteries are batteries? out. Yeah, because, you know, because you have to hear the toilet sounds oh, and all sure, that oh, kind sure. of stuff, you know, and the doorbell. And just the other day, one of the kids opened the refrigerator and I didn't even know that the refrigerator opened. And I've <laughs> had that dollhouse for... At least five years, oh, and several series of children that the fridge opens <laughs> and there's like pretend food inside the fridge. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, they just, it's stuff like that that I think, you know what? Sometimes I joke with my colleagues, I'm like, they really are smarter than us. I mean, I, I think that if they wanted to take over, they could.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, also well, yeah, next... Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: You say, say I, about it. Gop- that,
0: that Alison Gopnik's book, uh, The Scientist in the Crib is is the most aptly named book about what's going on in the in the minds of those those little people that I've that I've ever come across. It's just exactly what they are.
1: Well, you know, I was hearing one of the scientists about COVID the other day talking, and um, he was saying that what what scientists need is curiosity. And um what we do is repress curiosity from a very early age. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they're cleverer than us. They're just curious. And if only we would allow them to be really
0: curious. That we scroll it out of them.
1: Yeah, we do. I mean, I watch it sometimes. It breaks my heart to see. And it's why we're we're having trouble finding people who can be really uh, full of initiative
0: and, and, and creative and inventive, you know. Curiosity is terribly important. Colleen, you've talked a lot about relationships. I think that's the core of all we do. Not only us with the kids, but us with our coworkers and us with the parents. And uh, my experience is it can be exhausting. We're doing this emotional labor all day long because it is hard to be present in the moment with a bunch of tiny little needy humans all day long, five days a week. Um, what do you, what, what do you have going on in life for self-care that keep you in the game? Because um, my burnout work, the, the numbers seem to be in the 30 to 40% annual turnover re- rate in this profession, mostly due to, to burnout related topics. How do you, how do you keep going back every day?
2: Um, I think kind of like what I said before, having an outlet for people that I know I can talk to people like good friends that I know I can talk to without judgment. When I say this happened, she'd be like, that oh, uh, yeah, that was kind of not good, but tomorrow's a new day.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, I think I, I live by myself and sometimes just coming home and sitting in silence <laughs> for like five or 10 minutes. Like I, sometimes that's what it takes. Um, I like to take walks in the neighborhood. I'm trying to get back into that. I was very good in the beginning of the pandemic and then that (laughs) fell off a little bit. That for me is very relaxing, just walking around my neighborhood, maybe with a music or maybe a podcast on, or sometimes with nothing, just listening to the sounds of the neighborhood. And your cat, your cat. And my cats, yes, my three cats provide many hours of entertainment. (laughs) And um, (laughs) actually during the pandemic, one of the things, that I learned how to do was upload videos to YouTube. Who knew, who knew that like that was the thing. So some colleagues and I started reading books for the children that were home because our program was closed from March to July. So we started reading books and I started reading at least one book a day for the children in my classroom, just from my collection. And then my sisters started showing my nieces and nephew those videos so then i started making videos for my niece and my nephew because i mean i haven't seen them in over a year sure. because of, it's not really safe i don't for me it's not safe to travel and like for this year for christmas one of their gifts was i read at least one usually two winter or christmas books to them every day and sent them every day of december so like today's december 1st i'll be reading this book today and i never would have had that without covid so it's it's finding ways to connect to people i mean my niece has never met me and she's she's a baby she's almost 10 months old but she's at least hears my voice you know she's not watching the videos the same way as my 3 year old nephew is but she hears my voice and she's like oh so i'm hoping maybe i can be the fun aunt who reads books if that <laughs> becomes my title i'm i'm good with that <laughs> so where
0: you where you, you 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 don't have any interest in being a director we covered that you you're looking you're into doing some some mentoring type stuff just professionally you're you're i mean you're you're at the beginning of your of your pro- professional journey here still we're going to have to have you have you back on the show in fifteen years to see where you where you go but but what do you, do you have any any long term plans goals ever want to have your own program what do you what are you thinking are you just happy where you are
2: I'm happy where I am. I think I'd like to do more um, trainings in the community or like even in my school, just some trainings on infant toddler topics because it's hard to find really high quality infant toddler trainings and trainings from people who have lived it and done it. You Mm -hmm. know, like having a training from someone who taught first grade for five years isn't the same as having a training from someone who's in the classroom. I did, not this past summer, but two summers ago, I traveled back to New York to Fredonia and I um, presented at a conference of local early childhood uh, professionals. And one of the comments I kept getting was, we love it because you're still in the classroom. You're real. Cause I can still relay. I'm like, I know what it's like to be in the room with toddlers. You know, I took PTO to come present to you. So I enjoyed that. I presented it, you know, NACI a couple of times and other conferences, so I'd like to do more with presenting. Um, Maybe someday being like a CDA coach. um, I think that's an area that could use some help. And if I could be a good coach for, you know, five people, I would think maybe that could change the CDA process a little bit. Yeah. So, but still in the classroom, but expanding into more mentoring and coaching and training type stuff
0: who you, you've mentioned, and I, I think that's just kind of a natural trajectory for a lot of people. You mentioned plenty of people in this, in this last hour that, that were kind of that for you, that kind of mentor and coach. And I think as people spend more time in this profession and they get the, you just get the reps of, of the daily work under their belt, they, they have a, a desire and interest in, in kind of paying that forward to the next uh, next generation of people working in the field.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think I've Who
1: who, who were your greatest
2: mentors, would you say? Um, In early childhood, definitely Mira Berkeley, the early childhood professor at the college. Um, Judy Metzger and the whole staff at the campus and Community Children's Center, because that's I mean, I grew up there as a teacher, I became a teacher there. Um, Obviously, Laura Briley. um, Elsa. Also, Shaheen has kind of taken over Laura's work and she's become a lovely mentor for me. I'm sure I'm missing so many people, but those are the ones that come to mind. I mean, I just think I've been very lucky to have some connections. And I mean, I met Tamar through Mira. I think the first time we met was probably at a conference. You know, this is my friend Tamar and we just got to know each other through Mira because they're such good friends. And so I think there's lots of, Lots of mentors that I've been lucky enough to have
1: you know it's it's being able to um, seek out people right and to to know them when you see them it, It's not just that people help us, it's that we can we see them and we know how to take what we need from them as well as give back, of course, but uh, I think that's part of it it's 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 reciprocal, you know it's not just that they're there and they help us. It's that we know how to sort of, ah, this will be good for me. This is, this is where I need to go. Um, we, it's not a luck thing. It's we, we work to do that, I think.
0: So where, where does that ah come from, Tamar? Is that a body language thing that you get when you engage with them? Or where's that, where's I that think come from?
1: You know, it, I think it's where we are in life, that we, that we recognize that this is someone we need on our path now. You know, it's like it's almost like we're walking down a path, and then there's some kind of obstacle in our life, and then pops up this little magician, and we ah, oh, this is what I need right now, and I go in that direction for a while. You know, um, we we take who needs who we need to accompany us for a while. I yeah. once had a grief counseling professor who said, you know, when, when people we love die, it's very sad, but it's also that you know we they accompanied us for a while, and now we're going to accompany somebody else
0: for a while it's
1: it's a, just a different sort of way of thinking about it
0: uh, okay well here I is, is it like this when the first time we had you on the childcare bar and grill podcast tomorrow um within yeah. I think we had you on we ended up doing double episode or something like that and within the first 15 minutes of our conversation Tamar's talking about sex and I'm thinking <laughs> this this is somebody I could talk with more I might need more tomorrow in my life and, and i <laughs> I, I, and just because, you, because of your not 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 the sex talk, but the openness of of your of I the candor, I must have been,
1: must have been of your sharing. About, I must have been talking about the fact that play for adults is very often sex.
0: Yeah, probably. <laughs> And and um, it just did, it 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 was on topic. It just wasn't something you you started talking about out of the blue, but, but because and it wasn't that necessarily the topic, but that that candor and openness. I remember sitting there thinking, "Well, we're recording. Oh, I need more of her in my life." Um, so that's kind of a version of what you're what you're describing, isn't it? Yes, because yes. That, that is that is what I mean. Well, because, because after I mean, that, I, I, so. actively, I actively took steps to make sure there was more, more tomorrow in my life, um, whether she wanted it or not.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that, um, uh, well, it's not a, a podcast about you right now, uh, Jeff, but I think part of it was that you recognized some things in your childhood that you wanted to work on in yourself.
0: Oh, well, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast about, about exactly. the stuff Jeff is trying to work through. Um, Colleen, enough <laughs> <That's my> about <laughs> maybe, maybe after we interview everybody in early learning for this podcast, we can do that one. Colleen, what more about you do we need to know? Any questions we didn't ask you that we should have? Um, I, I don't think so. I think it's
2: I was honored to be asked to do this. I think sometimes people like Tamara push you outside of your comfort zone a little bit in a good way. She said, how would you like to do this podcast? And I, I was like, wait, well, what do you mean? Well, Paul, what do you mean a podcast? <laughs> what, what do you, <laughs> so no, I don't think I have anything else. I'm just very, very passionate about young children and respectful caregiving and having teachers in the field who really want to be with children. I'm, I'm a big proponent of like, if this isn't for you, great, move on to something else. Don't just stick around. And some people I think know they're not cut out for it, but it's a job. And I think those are the people that though, we don't need you in the field. We need people who really want to be here.
0: Uh, oh, 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 that brought up two, two, two more questions for me. Well, one is one that's been in my head, but that brought up one more question for me. How do, ha, have, how do we best counsel those people out of the profession?
1: I don't know.
2: I don't know.
1: Well, I was a director and I didn't
0: counsel them. I would say, "That's it. Bye." Yeah. <laughs> so a little bit more, a little bit more cut and dry, and then <laughs> instead of <having> the conversation, <laughs> not boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean,
1: had a bottom line.
0: Did Did you ever have to do that as a as a professor, though, Tamar?
1: Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely, and very often I would find that some students were, were like like I said, more interested in architecture or yeah. being a historian or something, and just didn't know that they had it in them, right? And a, a lot, not many, but some people go into early childhood because they think it's easy and it's and they don't feel like they can do anything else that they're not capable and so i would sort of build them up to understand that they can do other things yeah and
0: early childhood is not easy it's not an easy job no and uh- I mean, there and there are too many people working in the profession that are that are little more than warm bodies who can pass a background check, which is which is sad. And I think what you're what you're really talking about is goodness of fit. Um, and and while that's an important thing in, in infant toddler programs and for other ages, it, it it's important for staffing too. Some people just don't fit in a program or or the profession as a whole. And um and and being able to realize that when they're in their infancy, in the profession, is a lot better than than sticking it out right. for twenty or thirty years, <laughs> because,
1: and, and uh, harming children on the yeah, way.
0: Yeah, because there are plenty of people that have done that as well. Right. So, Colleen, the question that uh, that has been in the back of my mind for a little while, wondering if I should ask it, is this: um, all those. Yeah, wow, it's going to be a scary one. Um, <laughs> So all those, all those uh, siblings and 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 cousins that you were the oldest of over all those years that you did so much uh, uh, caring for, um, did fifty or sixty percent of them turn out okay as humans?
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i would say yes I mean, all right good yeah. good but i mean i i was only a little piece of the puzzle well, sure I only, sure so. but
0: i mean your influence i'm sure was the greatest i mean e- i mean
2: even if they hadn't turned out okay it wouldn't really be my fault
0: well <laughs> <Right>? i mean <laughs> I mean, you were just a piece, but you were probably a corner piece, <laughs> one of the important pieces. So um uh I mean we and I mean who wants to place fault, but I'm I'm glad they all turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you have you been doing this long enough that you've
2: run into former infants all grown up? Um Yeah. Um some of the children that I w- was like when I was in student teaching, they're in college now. And and it's just mind baffling that I'm like, oh. Or I'll get siblings that I'm like, oh, I had your sibling five years ago. So right now there's a lot of siblings. And uh-huh. especially because I haven't been in my program, I've been there almost six years. I ha- And I haven't been in Oklahoma long enough to see, you know, but I, I do sometimes run into people, you know, in pre-COVID times in the grocery store, or at a restaurant, and the parent will say to the child, do you remember? The parent usually remembers me. Yeah. And the child, the parent will say, she was your teacher when you were a baby. And the child will you know of course not remember and i'm like yeah. yeah but when you were a baby like i would give you bottles and i would do this and i would do, you know but yeah. they don't the kid doesn't remember but the parents usually do if i see them out.
0: i mean that's one of the hardest things about infants and toddlers especially is you you build these relationships that are that are deep and real and then they move on and they it i i used to fight this this feeling of emptiness i had when, when a child moved on, you just feel like a piece of you has disappeared and, and knowing that they're not going to remember you when they're, when they're growing up and they're not going to, they're not going to recall that relationship. Although it was, it was a very important thing to them at the time. And is very important to you at the time. It, it just kind of evaporates. And that's, that, that's almost, it, 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 it just, it, it broke me sometimes when kids would leave me. Um, I I guess that's probably tomorrow we will explain that there's something messed up with me about that, but uh... No, no, not
1: at all. I I think, I think teachers really suffer each year that they say goodbye to children because of that. And I, and I think that we do affect children in ways that are unconscious that we, we're not aware of, or they're not aware of, but, um, but it is, it's a very painful time that change yeah. over. Every time for, for teachers, we go through loss, deep loss. And, and
2: I think it is easier if you know they're going, especially if they're like moving up to another classroom and you're, if you know they're going to a really good classroom with good yeah. teachers, that yeah. that makes it easier. But I think it's harder when they're like, oh, well, we're moving to Arizona. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have no idea what, who your teacher is or who. So there is a sense of peace when you know where they're Mm -hmm. going. And um, like at our center, we take six months to like slowly integrate a child into their new classroom we visited and they get to visit it and we talk to the parents. And so there's a sense of peace, but it is hard, especially when you don't know they're going or when they leave the school Um, and like especially and during COVID, we didn't say goodbye. Like we were there on a Monday, we told the parents we were closing for a couple of weeks and then we weren't back until July. And we are running right now at about 50% capacity. So we're not even, some of the children didn't get spots Yeah. coming back. And I, I, do, I remember I was, we did a, a drive-through parade at some point, probably in May or June. And all the teachers, six feet apart, lined the parking lot. And the parents came and drove through. And I remember a child of mine had moved up know probably three or four months but before the pandemic happened moved up to preschool and i just remember when she drove around she was like her she was in the front seat she was not buckled because the parents were going you know like five miles an hour and she like about leapt out of the window she was like i missed you i missed you like and this was a child who like hadn't been getting my daily videos because she wasn't in my classroom anymore but that was such a moment of i missed you too She's like, I want to hug you. And I'm like, I want to hug you too. But we can't right now. Like, it's not safe. And her mom was like holding her to keep her. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I used to fight against giving. Oh, I, I mean, It's essentially giving your heart to them. I used to fight against it because I didn't want that feeling when they moved on. But then I, I realized that, that that feeling of loss that you feel is really, really symbolic of the of the job that you did. I mean, you were yeah. you were fully in and um and, and and that means a lot. And so then I then I realized that it's something we should wear as a as badges of honor that we yeah. we had such a deep meaningful relationship that that we felt loss. And it was, I mean it's it's exhausting and draining for us, but it's it's really the way that we need to do the job.
2: And especially, I mean, working in a continuity of care program, I, the hardest ones are the ones I've had since they were, you know, if I've had this three-year-old since they were eight weeks old, there's a lot, you know, I know a lot about this child. They know a lot about me. You know, you, I can look across the room and we can communicate just with our eyes in a way that I can't do with a child who I've only had for six months. So it's, it's, I mean, I love continuity of care. I, I think it's something I wish more programs could figure out a way to do. But I know it's hard with turnover and staffing. I know there are many, many challenges, but those ones that I've had since they were itty bitty. And often those are the parents that are not ready. They're like, I'm not ready for my child to leave your classroom. Yeah. I'm like, but listen. And, and so not only are you feeling lost, but you have to project like confidence to the parent. Like she's ready because of this and this and this and this. And when she's been visiting, she has started to talk to the other teacher and she's excited to visit the preschool room or She's, especially if it's a transition you can plan ahead for, she, she's ready and you'll be okay. Like you can still reach out to me, but you're going to be okay. I mean, I have kids that will, well, not now, but pre-COVID would stop by the room just to say good morning on their way down to preschool. And they're like, is that okay that she comes in? Of course. I I had a, a child who she was in kindergarten and her sibling was in the classroom that connects to mine. And she came in one day Her sister had already moved up to preschool by this point. So she just would come in to see me some afternoons and we were eating snack. And she said, Can I eat snack with you? Now, this is a five and a half year old, six year old. And I look at her mom and I'm like, Well, if your mom says it's okay. So she had snack with us and her sister had already moved up to preschool, but she still had that memory of, Is it? I'm like, Yeah, come in and have snack with us. And this child was with me during a particular traumatic period of her life. So I think that strengthened our our connection. Because for a little bit, I was myself and my co-teacher were the only consistent people in her life. There was a lot of yeah. change happening. And so it's those moments where I'm like, okay, I did make a difference. Yeah.
0: That that continuity is one of the things I loved about doing family childcare because we had, we had a, a cohort of kids that came to us as infants. And then they were with us. I mean, they'd start school and still be with us at, at summertime. So six plus years um that they would have relationships with us one little girl my annie um she was with us for four years and then she went to the preschool program her mom worked in but i would get phone calls on on like thursday afternoons um she she, because i was i was doing a lot of traveling for presentation over weekends and and she'd call like jeff are you you gonna are you gonna be home tomorrow yeah (laughs) can i come and play mom will pick me up and drop me off what's for lunch because she wanted to keep that relationship going, and so she would she would just drop in to, to reconnect with me and my wife Tasha and all the toys and all of the people she'd known all her life, because uh, it was it was too soon to break those relationships.
2: Yeah, this is this is my picture of the child I'm thinking of. The mom actually just messaged me last week and said the girls miss you. And the older one really wants to FaceTime with you. Can we like make a time? And I was like, yes, I'm on spring break next week. Let's do it. So this is a mom who also wants to maintain the connection. And um, I I wear Crocs pretty much every day of my life just because they're comfortable and easy to clean. And I just love them. (laughs) I know they're not fashionable. So if you're a fashion person, I know. But uh, I don't know, about six months ago, they had traveled to an outlet mall and there was a Crocs store. And she said, the girls insisted I send a picture of you in front of the crocs store so it's like the things they remember they were like oh we like her but we also know she likes crocs and she's gonna love this picture
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh tamar any final questions before we wrap things up no it's just so lovely to see colleen
2: i know i've missed people <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah.
0: Elaine, well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your time with us. But especially, thank you for sharing your heart and experience and knowledge with those infants and toddlers you work with and their their families. You are you are indeed making a difference in in their lives on a daily basis. We appreciate it and 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 sharing your story is is going to uh, going to influence and, and maybe help guide other people working in the field.
2: Well, thank you. I am honored, was honored to be asked to do this and I really enjoyed it. So thank you to both of you.
0: And you make, you
1: make the profession so profound because you make it sound so, so special and interesting and important. So thank you, Connie.
2: Thank you.
0: This has been Early Learning Journeys. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.